Before we get started, we just wanted to read a quick disclaimer. First and foremost, this is a comedy slash true crime podcast. We are a few guys who like to laugh and crack jokes. We understand the nature of the topic is very disheartening and grim, but our aim here is to bring to light these real-life situations so you, the listener, can be more aware of your surroundings and hopefully laugh alongside with us. We will not make jokes about the victims or the families impacted by the unfortunate situations, but we will make jokes about the perpetrator or anywhere we see fit. If you don't believe people should be joking about this subject, or if you are expecting a more serious retelling of the event, or if you do not like commentary and banter on the subject, then this is not the podcast for you. Hey, welcome back, everybody. My name is Will. Arr, I be Octavio. And I'm Ryan. (laughs) Yay. And today, we'll be talking about the biggest unsolved mass murder in Alaska's history. Oh, shit. So walk the plank and join us in these bloodthirsty times. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. They are a product of the times, and these are bloodthirsty times. I am excited about this week, guys. It What's is going on this weekend. Fireworks What's time, dude. It is time to buy them fireworks. Oh, is Ooh. it? Nice. Very yeah. nice. We have a bunch of different like um, places where you can go buy them. But there's this really big one that's also like a pottery place. Really mm-hmm. weird. Anyways, we go buy them. We could buy like actual like big old like um, the ones that mortar ones that go up. Oh, yeah. You know? Like actual and, uh, mortars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ones that will blow your hand off. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We, we buy those, and uh, it's a good time, you know? What could go wrong in the South? Well, like, they're technically only legal on the beach, mm-hmm. and so usually we go there, but last week, or last year, I mean, we uh, ended up just shooting them off in my backyard, you know? Oh. So yeah, people but- people really enjoyed that doom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but do you have the, uh, the swirly hoo-hahs? Do you got the whirly durlies? <laughs> Got a couple cherry no. poppers. Yeah. No, for some reason the one the I went to only the, had the, the snakes. <laughs> the what? I'm sorry. They only had the sparklers and snakes. For some reason, that's the only one he liked. Oh, the snakes. Oh, are okay. stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then not only that, but this week is what's called uh, scraping the coast. It's uh, two times a year. There's car shows, uh, and they take over the Highway 90. It's called, and it's the Beach Street. And so the first part of the year, like in the summer, is called scraping the coast. And it's like lower cars, like faster cars, like uh, street racing cars and stuff like that. But it's usually taken over by squatted trucks. And I hate it because that's the exact opposite. Because it's called scraping the coast, not douchebagging the coast. Squatting the What is a squatted truck? Well, you want to describe it? Because, uh, yeah, you drop your ass down. Okay. Doing that right now. Okay. And it it squats the truck up and it brings the hood up. So it's it's like... It's like a, a pre-runner, but... Uh, Without any of the cool. Yeah, just a more, like, exaggerated version of it. I see what you're saying. It's fucking it's, stupid. I, Plus, okay. they have, like, 20s or 22s with, like, chrome wheels on these trucks. And it's just... It's dumb. It's but, yeah, so stupid. these trucks, like, take over this, this event called Scraping the Coast. But the cooler one is by my birthday in October, and it's called uh, Cruising the Coast. And that's when people from all over the U.S. bring, like, their old Corvettes, their old... Um, like Chevrolets, like all kinds of like cool looking like 
really well done uh, classic cars oh, and wow. that's actually that's actually a lot of fun like those they come up with some really cool cars down here from literally like you see plates from all over the country like it's a yeah, big yeah. deal oh nice yeah nice. that yeah, sounds cool be sure it to uh, yeah. go to the event everybody uh, we're going to be setting up a booth out there bloodthirsty yeah. times if you want to go ahead and yeah. meet us uh we'll be doing <laughs> meet and greet down there at the uh, yeah, some autographs yeah Sweet, of my man. of my squatted truck over there, yeah. and you hey, might we, even be able to see Richard in his glory. Oh we bring, yeah, bring a new meaning to scraping the coast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's cool. awesome though, man. That's really yeah. cool. I'm, I've I've always seen like car shows and things like that. They've always been really interesting. I just never really, um, you know, I've never really been to one. So it'd be really cool to. Go you never went out. to the the one in Old Town Temecula? I haven't even been to that one. No. Oh man, my dad used to take us to that all the time. Those are I've always liked classic cars, like mm -hmm. just looking at them anyway, because yeah. they're expensive. Oh for and, sure. Yeah. Especially all the work that people do too. I mean I'm telling you, people come up with some cool designs for these old vehicles. Like they do yeah. a really good job. Yeah, and they're just really old. So they look cool. <laughs> I thought you were talking about the uh, people doing them. Like, oh, well, that too. Yeah, they're yeah. also old. Yeah, double entendre there. My favorite ones are always the uh, the old Impalas that are done like kind of cholo style, like kind of oh, yeah. what's it called, uh, like greaser done. Like, it's got oh, the yeah, black, yeah, the black finish with the red inside. You know, it's Ooh. squat, like really low. Like, oh man, I love the Impalas, dude. Nice, my man. favorite ones. Hell yeah, I'm, well, I'm a I'm a sucker for uh, rat rods. Yeah. Oh, those are cool too. There's a lot of those. Yeah. You guys actually, you guys should come on down in October. Just hey, come on down. I told hey, you, we're, we're we're setting up a booth out there. I told you. Yeah, and cool. then never leave after that. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Right. I don't know about all the hurricanes and shit down there. So you get plenty of warning. Okay. All right. <laughs> sure. Good enough. I'm sold. I'll be down there. All right. Cool. All right. All right. Richard. 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 Shut the fuck up. All right. Cool. You guys ready to get into it? Yeah, man. Yeah, dude. I this is interesting for me because. For one of the first times, I'm not completely aware of what's happening. So this is going to be fun Good. for me. It's nice. going to be story time. So let's get yeah. into it. I'm ready. I'm already sad. These are the deaths without answers. And the families without closure. I will be telling the stories and cases of the unfortunate with no real conclusions. You like that? That wow. was, we were working on that one for a little bit, dude. Yeah, yeah that's gonna be uh, that's gonna that's be my new intro. That's my new intro. I I like it. Nice, <laughs> that was, nice, dude. That's a surprise for me. I was like, "What am I listening to, guys?" Yeah, yeah. That's why we didn't tell you. I wanted yeah. to be a surprise. Um, there's one little uh, tear comes out. You know, it, uh, it's it's a sad story, yeah. man. I did I did the cold cases. Mm -hmm. So mysterious circumstances and make me sad. Yeah. Yes, and so now we got to come up with yours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, oh. Murder. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> this week is Octavio. Murder. 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 <clears throat> okay. Anyways, let's get into it. Mm -hmm. So our story today takes place in a quaint town called Craig, located on the Prince of Wales Island. Not the actual Prince of Wales. It's an island. Oh, shit. Whoa. Is that about to control pirates there? Ramping it up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the town was named after Craig Miller, who established a fish saltery in 1907. Now, to visualize where the hell in Alaska this is, it's on the southernmost tip of Alaska's state boundary. And it's so far away from the main body of Alaska, it might as well be Canada. Yeah, you picture it, it's just this little, like, dangler is the south part. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a bunch of... Yeah. Yeah, it's just a bunch of islands that link together. 
<clears throat> and with a population of roughly 1300 people, it was a pretty tight knit community and was really only visited by commercial fishermen traveling up and down the coast as the only way onto the actual island was by sea or air. And the massive commercial fishing industry in the area is what attracted Mark Colthurst to the area. Now, Mark wasn't from Craig. He wasn't even from Alaska. Mark gained his fishing notoriety, sorry, big words, in his hometown of Blaine, Washington, where he started his fishing career at the age of 16 and found that he had a knack for fishing and the money started pouring in. So much so that he was able to purchase a top of the line fishing vessel named the Investor for nearly $1 million. And this guy was 16? It wasn't 16 when he bought it. That's when he started his career. So he was in between 16 and 28 is when he purchased the vessel. He was probably like 25, 26. What year is this? Because a million dollars or nearly a million dollars in what year? Um, This would have been 1980, 1970. Yeah, late 70s, maybe early 80s. And so is that a million dollars in today's money or back then? Back then, but I mean... Yeah, that's a lot of money. A million dollars. Well, today is probably closer to 2.5 or something like that. Yeah, it was. That's quite a boat. It was a nice boat. Mm. Yeah. Now, with his early success and a new shiny boat, Mm -hmm. Mark started his voyage north up the coast into Craig, Alaska. And he would travel with seven others. His 28-year-old wife, Irene, who at the time was three months pregnant with her third child. His five-year-old daughter, Kimberly his four-year-old son, John, and four young deckhands. Mark had to handpick his deckhands because he needed to both trust them to work on his million-dollar vessel, but also trust them enough to live in close quarters with his family. Oh, yeah. I didn't think of that. Like, mm-hmm. if he's working for them, they have to stay in these really tight quarters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. They're going to be around them quite a bit. Yeah, yeah you have to trust and even like them, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So he chose 18-year-old Chris Heyman, 19-year-old Dean Moon, 19-year-old Jerome Keown, and Mark's own cousin, 19-year-old Michael Stewart. The vessel with eight souls on board arrived in Craig, Alaska on September 5th, 1982, just before the final days of the commercial fishing season in that area. They, of course, had been fishing up the coast during their voyage and were carrying roughly 77,000 pounds of salmon when they pulled into the port uh, in Craig. When they pulled into port in Craig. (laughs) Pulled into port (laughs) in Craig. Oh, man. Oh, so you Uh, went there, huh? Inserting themselves into the port. Inserting into Craig. So they they fish salmon then because that's what's big up there. So yeah. seventy-seven thousand pounds of salmon. Yeah. Did you guys that's... hear about that lobster fisherman who got swallowed by that whale? I did. Yeah, I did. That's well, he didn't technically get swallowed, but he was in the mouth. Yeah, right. he was in the mouth of the whale. Um, I mean, but yeah, got, that's, that's still pretty intense, that's, though, man. Yeah, that's a good story. He got pretty. He got crushed a little bit. Like he had some injuries because of yeah, it. Yeah, his legs were a little bit injured. Yeah. But didn't he also like survive like a plane crash or something like that? Like the guy has like a crazy story. Dang. Imagine now he's I don't, like, you know what? I'm not going to go fly anymore. I'm going to go try my luck and see. And then he goes and gets swallowed by a whale. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I don't believe him. That, that, is, <laughs> right? that is the argument. A lot of people are saying like, oh, it's just, that's a lot to happen to you. 
Like, yeah, yeah. interesting no story there. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's like, hmm, so you got swallowed by a whale, huh? Ooh, okay, yeah. is your name Pinocchio? Yeah. Or Jonah? <laughs> it's like, it's like yeah. he turned me into a newt. Turned you into newt. I got better. I got better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what he's saying in the hospital right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, well, well, I'm fine. Yeah. Just... Anyways, I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Uh, so now Mark, knowing this seventy-seven thousand pounds of salmon, was worth north of thirty thousand mm. dollars. So he was pretty eager to offload and head back to Blaine, Washington. But unfortunately, because the Alaskan Department of Fish and Game had temporarily closed commercial salmon fishing a week prior to them arriving, it was set to reopen Monday. This was Sunday, for those that are curious. And so Mark and his family and the crew would have to spend the night in Craig until they could get paid. This would be their demise. So one day off? Yes. Wow. What luck. Yeah, Monday was their, we're returning back to Blaine. Business as usual, and they came in on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that's rough. So <clears throat> Mark would proceed to tie up the investor to two other ships at the dock. So he didn't dock directly to the actual physical dock. He docked mm-hmm. to two other ships. And the two other ships were the Defiant and the Decade. Mark happened to know the captains and had a good working relationship um, with the captains of the other ship. So it wasn't a big deal that a, they were tied up to them because that's kind of a big deal. You just tie mm-hmm. up to a random ship right? and B they would have to cross the decks of the two ships to reach the dock. Mm-hmm. And so they were just like, ah, this is cool. Yeah. Um, I, when I worked in San Diego on the ships there, um, I used to work installation and there was, uh, two DDGs, which are the destroyer class ships mm-hmm. that, uh, they would be docked like that next to each other instead of attached to the dock. So I would have to go over one ship to get to the next ship. The ship yeah. Yeah. So was, I, I can pick, there's like a gangplank between the two ships and it's, it's pretty sketchy, not going to mm-hmm. lie, but you have to like cross that to get to the next job or the next boat. And so, yeah, I can, I can actually picture that. So that's. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty common practice. I mean, I'm sure if you go down to like any local Marina, you'll see mm-hmm. other ships kind of dock together and they're all friends and it, just kind of like a the the homies hanging out type of thing. Gotcha. Now today, September fifth, was a special day. Today is my one hundredth birthday. <laughs> so okay, so you turned up at eleven years old. <laughs> Let me get this straight, guys. So you guys create uh, intro in secret and then you include a lord of the rings reference in uh-huh. will's episode yep wow that's not on brand no <laughs> <laughs> but, i should have seen it coming i guess is what i'm saying <laughs> you should have. the writing was in the stars sir <laughs> but in seriousness it was mark's 28th birthday not his 100th birthday yeah, i love first. the way he said that 11th first yeah 11th first half you do as well as i should <laughs> I would have wanted to include that part. Anyways. <clears throat> and what better way to celebrate a birthday than to be stuck in a tiny town in Nowheresville, Alaska? Mm-hmm. So they disembarked and headed into town. The deckhands went their own way, and the Colthurst would attend a small birthday party for Mark at Ruth Ann's restaurant, one of the very few restaurants in this tiny little town. 
Deckhands Moon and Keon met up with a friend and a actual previous deckhand for Mark, John Keneth Peel. Kenneth. Kenneth? Keneth? Kenneth. Kenneth. Yeah, John, John Kenneth Peel. John Kenneth Peel. Mm-hmm. I was thinking Key and Peel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I read Kenneth, I was like, Keneth? Nah. <laughs> John Kenneth Peel. I says, I says. Yeah. And I said, I said, I was like, <laughs> anyways, they purchased some devil's lettuce, marijuana, stink grass, etc. Ganja. Yeah, there you go. Weed. Weed. <laughs> that good, good. Kush. Yeah, Kush. Loud. Pineapple, Pineapple Express. Loud. Doinks. <laughs> I don't know if that's one. No. It's definitely so, not one. So it is. Dude. Okay. Jake. You get you get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> now around 9.30 p.m., the Colthurst family left the restaurant. And then would proceed back to the investor, crossing the deck of the decade. Because obviously they're all attached, saying mm-hmm. hello to the crewmate on board before calling it a night. The crew of the decade were celebrating the end of the salmon season. So they were boozing it up all night until the wee hours of the morning. During that time, they would not notice anyone that had crossed their deck to the investor who was tied up alongside of her. A, because they were boozing it up mm-hmm. and B there was a big storm that had come in overnight. So it would be hard for them to notice anyone that had crossed the deck at the time. Yeah. Also wouldn't they, if they're boozing it up and partying, they'd be below decks most likely. Right. Is that a joke? No. Oh no, no, no. They, it's, it's when you think of the fishing vessels, like the, they have like a small galley, but mm-hmm. mostly they'd be like at the pilot house and the living quarters. Right. Yeah, I just assumed if they were drinking and partying out, they'd be down below in the oh. living quarters or the, uh, like you said, the, the galley. Yeah, I mean, there there were like very few that were actually on the deck, but obviously. So they were I, just too busy partying to notice anything around them. Exactly. Okay. Now, 10 p.m. would be the last recorded sighting of the Colthurst family. And this is the last time anyone would be seen alive on the investor. The following morning, Around 6.30 a.m., the crew of the decade would awake, very hungover, I would assume, yeah. to find the investor slowly drifting away from them, as if pulled away by the currents. The deckhands, none the wiser, waved to the man that they saw in the pilot house, thinking that it was Mark, who waved back at them. Only later would they find it odd that the ship's engine was off as if trying to sneak away from the other ships. Because normally when a ship is pulling away from a dock or from other ships, the captain would fire up the engines so they can navigate the close quarters and avoid Mm -hmm. damaging other vessels. Mm -hmm. It was also curious that the investor, that the tie downs for the investor were left lying on the deck of the decade because normally they take the tie downs with them. They're super right. expensive and they just yeah. keep reusing them until they break. Yeah. And so they saw those and they're like, wait, that's kind of weird. Why did they leave their tie downs? Mm-hmm. About 15 minutes later, the captain of the decade, Clyde Curry, looked towards the slowly drifting investor and saw a man on the deck. He described the man as average height, but stocky with light brown or blonde hair. 
and wearing a very distinct black and red plaid jacket that was very easily spotted from a distance. Okay, so there's a guy. He, I don't know, does he assume this is the captain, uh, Mark? Or is it just someone that he doesn't recognize? He, yeah, someone he doesn't recognize. Well, I guess my question would be just like in, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, My Cousin Vinny, but um, he's like, how good is your eyesight from here? You know? Mm-hmm. Like, could you describe uh, the guy who's wearing the plaid jacket or could you just see the plaid jacket? Like, that's my question right now. It's like, how he, far away was he? Um, they kind of, it was it was slowly drifting, so <clears throat> I don't know. I'm gonna guess numbers, probably like 100 yards. Yeah, I guess enough well, to get a detail of what he's wearing, but that's not, what I, probably I mean, no. He's, obviously, he was able to see that he was a stocky man with like light blonde or brown hair. Yeah, because again, I mean, they, they weren't pulling away; they were just drifting with the current. Yeah. Okay. So it, it was relatively slow, and it, only 15 minutes. Yeah. Had, so they they weren't too far away. Yeah, uh, enough to recognize. Hey, he's wearing red and plaid uh, jacket. He's got light brown or blonde hair, and it's a stocky fucking dude. Okay. Can't recognize the face, so right. he doesn't know. Like, hey, is this a deckhand? This is the captain. He just recognizes someone's on there, and they don't think nothing was out of the ordinary at first, right? At around 7.30, the investors settled across the harbor near what they called Fish Egg Island. And then it appeared as though it had been anchored. Several people in town report seeing the inventor's skiff. Inventor, the investor's skiff. You guys know what a skiff is? Yeah. Okay. It's a small boat that they take from big ship to shore. Like on a cruise ship, they have skiffs. Yeah. So basically, like the, the larger ship is anchored out in the ocean. They used a smaller boat to get to the shore. Yeah. Exactly. And um, they reported seeing it tied up in town and just assumed they needed the last minute supplies for their day of fishing or they had forgotten something on shore. The investor would remain anchored as a heavy fog rolled in around 1030 a.m. And because of the newly opened salmon fishing season, because this was Monday, they reopened the season again. Yeah. And all the busy activity in the harbor, the investor slipped from everyone's minds. Right. It's like, cause it's normal because they're, it's like, oh, it's fishing season. Like, yeah, they're just out there. There's going to be, there's going to be boats. Thousand pounds of fish. It's going to be boats in and out. It's hard to tell what boat is coming or going. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it's just another ship out in the middle finding its business, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, the next day the fog lifted and the investor was still anchored near Fish Egg Island in the exact same spot. Now some red flags were being raised because Mark should be out there taking advantage of the new season, but instead he was just docked offshore. Hmm. And about this time, a young man was seen buying two and a half gallons of gas in town, and then jumped into the skiff and headed towards the investor. At 4 p.m., a nearby fishing vessel, the casino, noticed smoke rising from the investor. And they quickly headed over to assist and contacted the local authorities of the situation they were heading into. Not to interrupt, but if I had a boat, I would love to name it the casino. That just sounds like a fucking <laughs> badass name for a boat. That is a good right? Hey, man, like you want to come to the fucking casino, dude? Like, let's right. go. Yeah, jump and on the casino, on baby. Yeah, dude. We're going to go fish for salmon, baby. <laughs> in route to the stricken vessel, the captain of the casino noticed the skiff pull away from the investor and head towards town. The captain hailed the skiff to stop to no avail, and he practically had to ram the tiny ship to get it to stop. The captain asked the man on the skiff if anyone was 
onboard the investor. Yeah, there's people on the boat. Same guy. <laughs> Same guy. I'm telling you, man. This guy's he's everywhere. He's sketchy, <laughs> man. And then the captain watch, watch, watched. Watched. <laughs> watched. Waluigi. Captain Watch. The captain watched as the skiff raced into town. Mm. Once docked, the man spoke to at least three people in town for the eyewitnesses and then just disappeared into the fog. Did this guy have a plaid shirt on? I will not tell. Okay. <laughs> he just showed up, talked to a couple people, and then disappeared. Yeah, well, I couldn't help but notice there was a lack of description. Yes. That's a key. This is fun. I don't know why you guys don't, you know, this what? is fun. I'm learning as I'm going. This oh, yeah, fun. it's fun, right? Mm-hmm. That's why I do it all the time. Yeah. It's the best. So once the casino arrived to the investor's aid, the ship at this time was fully engulfed, and the crew were unable to get their boat close to the investor. Alaska State Trooper Bob Anderson was the first on scene, and seeing the severity of the fire and knowing the town of Craig did not have the resources to fight a fire on water, radioed a mayday. Two hours would pass before a tugboat with a small water pump would arrive and start dousing the flames. The Coast Guard had also been contacted to assist in delivering more pumps to the scene. And Trooper Anderson returned to town, reported to his sergeant that because he noticed the fire was spreading so quickly, he thought arson was a possibility. Hmm. That's great. Two hours? Yeah. Two hours of burning? That's a long time for it to burn. With an accelerant? Like, that's... Mm -hmm. With a what? With, with an, an accelerant? accelerant. Like adding fuel to the fire. How'd you know? Because he just said it. He said <laughs> arson. Yeah. Well, that he noticed it. Obviously, you can piece two and two together. Two and a half <laughs> gallons of gasoline. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, not just that. He saw that how fast it was uh, actually taking down the ship. So yeah. that Plus, uh, I, I don't include this. This is from my memory bank. The Because the boat was close to a million dollars it was designed to not burn that makes sense oh yeah i would i would hope a million dollar boat would be good at you know yes. staving off some mm-hmm. kind of disaster it, yeah that makes sense a lot of the materials were fire retardant it and so in seeing that trooper anderson was like ah shit this is probably arson yeah yeah sergeant agreed and so they started yeah, that, that, that process yeah yeah <clears throat> at 7 30 p.m the tugboat captain radioed an all clear to the coast guard the fire was under control and at this time trooper anderson would return to the ship which was burned all the way down to its gunnels now octavio you know what a gunnel no never heard no? that term before no nope. brian but i work at large i work on large ships so i don't know if this is something uh, no, it, it, it won't pertain to a large ship the gunnel is basically like uh, where the hole meets the, the the top edge of the the entry to the ship. Oh, sense. I got it. So like the living quarters underneath, and then um, it goes. Yeah, you you follow the hole up, and then there's obviously that lip where if you were like fishing, that's where your arms would be. Right. That's mm-hmm. the gunnel. Okay. So everything above that was charred, all the way down to the gunnel. Mm-hmm. And the vessel was listing twenty degrees. 
Anderson boarded the ship with a handful of volunteers. Sorry, sorry, did you explain the listing 20 degrees? Listing 20 degrees. So mm -hmm. I don't, it doesn't describe if it was left or right. Um, but it was lifting to one of its sides, a 20, it was 20 degrees. So you figure 20 degrees, it's tipping to that side. Oh, it's tipping. Okay. Like yeah, that's listing. Kind of... Listing is okay. tipping. I got yeah. it. Okay. Understood. Yeah. Anderson boarded the ship with a handful of volunteers and they started searching the charred wreckage. In what used to be the galley of the ship, they found the charred remains of four bodies. They would later be identified as Mark, his wife, Irene. Oh, shit. And the unborn child, by the way. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's what I said. Oh, shit. <clears throat> Their daughter, Kimberly. Oh, no. Kids? Yeah. And Mark's cousin, Mike. Fuck. All four of the bodies had multiple gunshot wounds. Are you serious? Hmm. Yeah. They were just lit on fire. Why yeah. would they? It adds another level of mystery. Yeah. Mystery. I... Yes. Oh, it was shit, a pretty dude. grisly scene. Yeah. Yeah. And shortly after the remains were removed, the fire flared back up and destroyed what was left of the cabin. Anderson then returned back to Craig, where he was met by a policeman who said he interviewed a witness who had seen the man in the skiff. The witness said the man was 20 to 25, 20 to 21 years old, light brown or blonde hair, and weighing 150 to 160 pounds. He had glasses, was wearing a ball cap with the logo on it, but because he was sitting in the skiff, the witness could not estimate the man's height. So we don't know if this is the same guy that they were <clears throat> seen on the boat wearing the plaid shirt. Correct, because they don't mention a plaid shirt, but mm -hmm. right. yeah, so stocky. We Right, one fifty, one sixty. The hair, the hair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the following morning, two more state troopers would arrive in Craig. I mean, if you guys have watched the show Alaska State Troopers, this would actually make sense. Right. I mean, Alaska is a huge place. Too. Yeah, I haven't seen that, but yeah, it makes sense that it would take that long to get there. Well, if you haven't seen it, side tangent: all these small towns, unless you're in the the, the big major populated areas, they Anchorage, don't have you know. they don't have quote unquote law enforcement, they might have like volunteer people, mm. but the Alaska state, state troopers have to actually be flown into areas. They'll get like a radio call, like, Hey, there's been a murder in this in Craig. Mm -hmm. And so mm. they have to like fly in more state troopers to assist. And yeah. if it's down there on the South end, that means what Juno would respond. Juno is North of it's like 300 miles North of um, Craig. Mm hmm. Right, well, that, that's the closest major city, isn't it? Yeah, so wherever the, the state troopers, the, the majority of the state troopers are, they, they would fly them down to Craig. So, yeah, probably Juno. Yeah. <clears throat> so they called in a helicopter because they needed it to fight the remaining fire aboard the ship. Now, because the ship was listing so badly, tipping so badly, Octavio? Yeah, I got um, you. Yeah. They decided to tow it back to shore and wait for arson investigators to arrive. While waiting for investigators, the investor was left unguarded. Anyone and their mom could climb into the wreckage, and it is also believed that the rising tides had destroyed most of the remaining evidence on board the ship. Mm. Kind of, if you have to fly in troopers and other investigators, it, they don't have the resources to protect whatever, um, what's it called, they have uh, evidence they could have. They don't yes, but... Again, when I say they have like volunteer people, there's always people in those communities that are 
the like volunteer law enforcement. I, when I hear volunteer, I don't think expert professional though. No, but they say, hey, I, just stand there and make sure no one jumps on the fucking ship. It was as easy as that. They docked it and said, hey, just keep guard. Make okay, sure no one. Follow up question. How, how, um, regular, how regularly is someone being murdered there? They, a lot of, even the towns that are mainland here, there's plenty of stories that I've heard where they are such a small force that they don't even know how to handle an investigation, a murder, um, you know, a search of anything. You know what I mean? Like no, even on true. mainland, even on mainland, small towns, you know, tiny town, Mississippi, they, they don't have murders often or at all. Just like oh. the one story, the first murder, murder, murder. murder. <laughs> the, the first, the, the first murder in a, I think it was, what town was it? Was it Lizzie Borden? No. You, no. It was the first murder that they ever had to deal with. We covered it already. Yeah. I forgot which one it is. Yeah. But yeah, towns like, either. yeah, towns like that. Um, but they, they they don't know it's they don't know it's murder per se, right? They just know, hey, there's probably arson involved, and now we have bodies. So the guy who found the gunshot wounds didn't say there's gunshot wounds. Mm, they they found it when after they examined it. Oh, okay, I got you. They didn't like jump on board and be like, oh, like, holy shit, there's gunshot wounds. Do you see it those? Was... Do, you, do you see those holes? You see... Yeah, I get you. So, I, I I appreciate you playing devil's advocate because normally that's what I do. Yeah, so someone's got to do it. I, I can see how you do it because I don't know what's going to happen. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So they just they left it unguarded because we'll get into it when we come to the prosecution. It was just this whole like foobar situation basically. Mm-hmm. So during the arson invest, uh, the investigation, um, the arson investigators, they examined the rest of the investor and he located more bone fragments. They were able to identify one of the deckhands remains, Jerome Keown, but were unable to determine if the other fragments belonged to Chris Heyman or Dean Moon. They, just, they, they, they couldn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. The remains of Mark's four-year-old son, John, would never be found. Oh, shit. And the investigators believe that he was just completely consumed by the blaze. So if he, Damn. If he was found, it would literally just be like a cremated body and they wouldn't know. Yeah. Just, just ash. Basically. That is, you know, I I forgot he had another kid. Like, I just, oh, uh, I don't like it. I don't like when kids are involved. Like, that's always yeah. so rough. That's, that's terrible. Yeah. Now, investigators were trying to determine who could commit such a heinous act of violence. They did not believe it was one of the missing deckhands because eyewitnesses were certain that the man operating the skiff was neither Chris Heyman or Dean Moon. Because remember, they couldn't determine the other. Right. And they were known. They were known since they had already gone across their decks. They would know them. Mm -hmm. And since they were never seen again following the fire, they were just presumed dead, and authorities determined that eight people lost their lives on the investor. That's brutal, man. Such a shame. Yeah. Investigators did not have much evidence to help find the killer, and they did a very poor job of handling the investigation, which was even admitted by the prosecuting attorney. Because police were unable to extinguish the fire on the investor until the day after it started, most of the forensic evidence had been torched. And the troopers weren't even certain the exact number of victims who died on the boat. They just said, "Mm, I can't determine. All right, we'll say all eight died. I can understand how they came to that conclusion. Like there's 
other bones that were found, right? That's what you said. There was like yeah. fragments, bone fragments. fragments found. And then who knows? I mean, I assume the rest of the family died. So, but it is possible that there is a missing kid out there. Mm. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's yeah, possible. It's, un- it's unlikely, but yeah, again, like it's it definitely a possibility. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll, we'll cover a little bit in the, the next bit of okay. what they believed happened, but... Mm-hmm. The only two that they were unable to account for were those other two deckhands. Bean Moon and the yeah. other. Right. And they just assumed they were killed, so they said, all eight died. So when the first responding officer was notified that the skiff uh, that was seen leaving the burning investor was tied up at the cold storage dock in town, he didn't even bother searching for fingerprints. He's like, nah, the rain would have washed any away and failed to impound the boat to search it more closely. Mm. So boat that was leaving a burning ship. Uh. Like, nah, not a big deal. And the only evidence the authorities had were the eyewitness accounts of the man purchasing the gasoline and that vague description of the man. Hmm. I can I can almost I mean this is unacceptable work. Again, we already talked about how they were um probably volunteers, but the amount of times people like officers are just like, meh, like, okay. It's like the Richard, uh, Richard Ramirez, uh, night soccer that they had a car with his prints on it. But since they had conflicting jurisdictions, one jurisdiction was just being a dick and refused to search the car properly. Mm-hmm. And the other jurisdiction wanted to, but it was already impounded at the other jurisdiction slot. And the other jurisdiction slot was being like, nah, it's, it's fine. You know? So Richard Ramirez got away for longer. But still, that, that makes me so angry, dude, when yeah. people don't do their jobs. Like, what else are you going to do? Stare at the water? Like, No, it is frustrating. Yeah. And it, it definitely changed the outcome of the trial phase because yeah. of it. And yep. Brian will be the one that goes into it. But yeah, it, it the lack of evidence preservation and gathering evidence, it definitely affected the outcome. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. So now investigators started trying to piece together the puzzle and believe the crew members of the investor were killed two at a time as they returned to the boat Sunday night after dinner. Mark, his wife Irene, their daughter Kimberly, and Mike were all thought to have been shot with a 22 caliber weapon. And they believe that the killings happened shortly after the family returned to the investor because Irene was still wearing the same clothes from dinner. Mm. And then they said the killer probably remained on the investor overnight. And the following morning, he drifted the boat over to Fish Egg Island, where he opened the seacocks, giggity, (laughs) (laughs) which are basically like ports that they can, they can open at the hold to um, cool down the engine if they needed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just opened them all up. And tried to sink it. He took the investor's skiff into town, thinking the deed was done. And when the fog cleared that morning, the investor was still above water. So that's when he purchased the gasoline and went mm. back to finish the job. Okay. Um, pretty obvious questions. Uh, they were all shot. Mm-hmm. I know I know that they were drunk on the decade. I know that. But gunshots, eight. Oh, Yeah. I guess that could muffle enough, especially mm-hmm. if they're below decks. I mean, there's, I know that 
well, well I, I work on steel ships, so it's different, but I know that even a deck or two below the sound becomes increasingly less because of the water. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just feel like gunshots would have been heard or a pop. I mean, I, again, they were all drunk, so it's also a twenty-two. It's not exactly. Yeah, it's Brian, not Brian was a witness to a shooting with a twenty-two. Barely heard it. He's like, "Oh, this firecracker!" Yeah, I thought it was yeah. just like a paintball gun. So it's not exactly the loudest gun in the world. So and yeah, I, I guess mean, if they were under under the deck, absolutely could muffle the sound one hundred percent. Yeah, and follow up uh, to what you just said. He stayed on the boat with yeah. dead bodies. Mm-hmm. That is morbidly terrible like that is that is how how do you do how how do you do that there's fucking bleeding dead bodies all around you killer i i don't i don't understand that mindset i'm glad i don't but yeah damn stayed on a because there's not a lot of even it's a million dollar boat there's not a lot of room for eight bodies in yourself like this blood's yucky yeah it's relatively big i mean you think of like um the like the crab fisherman boats it was probably about that size yeah, that's what I'm picturing. Yeah, yeah. I'm picturing a million dollar decently sized it's a fishing yes. boat. They, they gotta have a lot of room. Yeah, mm-hmm. A tiny little fishing boat. It's a it's a yeah. decent sized boat. Um, it's funny that you mentioned the twenty caliber because there are some eyewitness accounts, um, not eyewitness but witnesses that heard popping but didn't know what the hell it was. Hmm. Yeah, they're also docked outside of two boats, right? So you have to cross two boats to get to the third. Right. The, yes. Okay, so that's still a distance away. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, okay. That... They thought it was like a generator backfiring. They, they didn't recognize him as gunshots. Okay. Basically. <clears throat> and a year would go by as investigators still struggled to find the killer until authorities finally released an artist's rendition of the man on the skiff and they pieced it together from the eyewitness accounts. Now, several fishermen came forward from the area and said, hey, I recognize that man. And they identified him as John Kenneth Peel. The dude that was hanging out with the deckhands? Yeah, he was one of uh, the deckhands. Yeah, he was a previous deckhand for Mark, and it's the one that the two deckhands purchased the uh, devil's lettuce from. Mm. Now, authorities arrested Peel two years after the murders took place. And then finally, two years later, in January of 1986, the trials began. <laughs> all rise uh yeah, surprise motherfuckers <laughs> so, surprise motherfucker. yeah man that's that's super crazy because you think about it we, we know little to nothing about this john kenneth peel mm-hmm. um and so now you know that's uh, kenneth peel sorry kenneth 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 peel <laughs> wow <laughs> so they uh but yeah i mean it's it's crazy that um you know this was the guy that's their they're pointing to because we we don't know anything next to nothing about him like motive wise anything so mm-hmm. um yeah the trial would definitely be something that plays very interestingly uh to the whole case like this is all pretty much trial from here on out um so yeah let's just get right into that now during the pol- the <laughs> i'm already i messed up the second word <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Now, during the preliminary hearings following Peel's extradition to Alaska, his lawyer, Philip Widener, would allege that prosecutors had intimidated multiple witnesses into testifying in front of the grand jury. Now, this allegation that the authorities were leaning on witnesses, you know, perhaps illegally, would come up again and again during these early hearings causing at least two of the 24 witnesses to plead the fifth. 
Now, they would claim that they now had doubts about the testimony they had presented in front of the grand jury. And this allowed these witnesses to avoid potential perjury charges should it come to light that, you know, they had fabricated any part of their statements, um, but also began to put doubt into the minds of many that followed along with the story in the media. Okay, so already shoddy investigative work and horrible, like, witness tampering? Essentially, yeah, they're already beginning to, um, you know, put like sow those seeds of doubt into key witnesses as well as media or anyone following. Because now they're trying to pander to the to the like the the jury, the audience, whoever's mm -hmm. watching, trying to be like, hey, this may or may not have happened. <laughs> beer time, beer clock yep, right now. Yep. <laughs> now Peel's lawyers would also bring to light a discrepancy with the transcription of one of Peel's police interviews, which had been incredibly valuable in obtaining the grand jury indictment. Now the transcription, which was submitted to the grand jury instead of actual audio, stated that Peel told investigators, uh, I'm scared, man, I'm scared. I can't believe the things I did in there. <laughs> that sounds like a man with the devil's lettuce, if you ask me. Now, however, Peel's lawyers alleged that Peel actually stated this during the interview. <laughs> I'm scared, man. I'm scared. I can't believe y'all think I did that. So there's a little bit of a difference there, mostly towards the end. You know, he changed it from I, I can't believe the things I did in there to I can't believe you all think I did that. Um, so there was a slight difference there, but you could already see that they're trying to play you know, and that, trying to that slight tweak of what three words makes yeah. all the difference in the world. It oh, really yes. does. It really does. Now, the differences between the two were striking and could have possibly influenced the grand jury into pursuing charges against Peel. This is intense. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking, we hired Beethoven over here. Richard, yeah. you need to calm down. <laughs> Richard, Richard, take it easy, bro. Uh, you try to show off his skills so we don't fire him. Yeah, you see. Oh, he's really getting into it now. <laughs> this is the good part. Yeah. Come on, beer. We got it. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Now, another discrepancy came in the form of a witness citing seeming to oppose the scientific foundation of the cause, which would become another hot button issue. Now, while John Peel had been identified as the young man getting two and a half gallons of gas on the morning of the investor fire, the prosecution had failed to mention to the grand jury that only white gas residue had been found on the scene of the crime, which only hinted at the killer using an accelerant to start the fire, likely not gasoline, which would have left behind regular gas residue. White gas residue would have likely been left behind if the killer had used kerosene or some other kind of similar accelerant, which seemed to punch a hole right in the middle of the prosecution's case. Yeah, so you, you, but you said you they didn't purchase. mention that. What's that? You said they didn't mention that though. Like that was that little details left out. This, just, yeah, right. Yes. So this, the prosecution had failed to mention that to the grand jury that it was white gas residue, not regular gas. Okay, residue. so now you have oh, John Peel was buying gas in the morning, mm -hmm. but and they said that there was gas used in the crime scene when that's not exactly true. Yeah, they yeah they they failed to mention that it was a particular type of residue, yeah. not associated with regular gas. So lying by omission. Right. Exactly. Now, 
All of this information was going to be taken into account by both the defense and the prosecution, as John Peel's arrest quickly became a thing of the past, and his first court date continued to loom larger and larger on the horizon. Wow, this is some great music. I know. <laughs> it works out perfect. Yeah. Now, during almost all of John Peel's court proceedings, he would wear a mask or an elaborate disguise, you know, such as a fake mustache and wigs and glasses. Yes, and then he would sit in order to mask his appearance, which is very interesting to me. Now, his lawyers cited their client's safety, believing that his privacy was at risk of being permanently violated because of the high-profile nature of the case. And this music is so intense right now. It's, it's, it's just kidding. Let him get to the solo. Hold on, get it. Give him his time to shine right now. Get it. He's nailing it. Really getting into this right now. Really. He's really trying to build that drama, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, he's, all right. he's trying to... <laughs> all right, here we go. Right, he's calmed down. Now you can talk. All right, all right. Now, the would petition for Peel to be able to avoid being photographed by members of the press. Now, they would even call for police to avoid talking to him as he was transferred between buildings and jurisdictions in order to avoid tampering uh, the jury pool for the upcoming trial. Bruh, <clears throat> there's, there's a famous picture from the trial of him. Mm-hmm. Wearing a fucking ski mask. Yeah, yeah, like I saw straight that. up bank robber. Um, yeah, you guys and that's me after. I want to yeah. see that. No, it's, it's really, it's, it's crazy. I, I, I watch it. I'm like, does he? Is this like the fucking clowns court? Like, what is right. going on? I don't know, but that's really. It's interesting to me that he made that decision because, like, I mean, why? First of all, like, if I mean, we we talk about that kind of you know every here and there, but like you know masking yourself and it just kind of feels like to me that he's admitting guilt and just doesn't want to show his face I at guess, least at a subconscious level that's what i believe honestly. right but, it'd be like we hear cases where you haven't got to one yet but there's like a, a lot of true crime cases they involve the guy didn't want to do a um polygraph test mm-hmm. and while those aren't admissible in court and really don't mean anything the fact that he didn't want to do it is like oh that's kind of sus but at the same mm. time why would you do it if it's not admissible like it doesn't mean anything it it's, just it, it makes you look bad, but at the same time, what does it matter? Because it's not doesn't mean anything. So, to me, him wearing a disguise is kind of almost telling me he's innocent because he wants whenever this is done, he wants to be able to live his life. Oh, so that's gotcha. that's my take on it. Like I don't know if it's slightly different than yours or completely different, but right. him wearing the mask is like I didn't do this, and when this is over, I want to be able to live my life. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we guess we never really know what. Or why he did that. So And he said he was like twenty one as well. Like he has a whole life to live. Yeah, yeah, he was he was pretty young. Now, the trial itself was scheduled to begin in January of nineteen eighty six and was expected to run for more than two, uh, that of two months. So that the jury could hear all of the evidence for and against Peel's guilt in what had become the state's largest mass murder case to date. However, before that could happen, you know, preliminary hearings were held to determine what evidence could be presented in the trial and to establish the limits of Peel's bail. Now, during these hearings, Peel's lawyers filed several motions that alleged misconduct on behalf of the prosecution. You know, as I hinted just a, you know, a few moments ago, it was alleged that the, the prosecutors 
had intimidated witnesses or misconstrued their statements, right? Mm-hmm. Now, to influence jurors and to convince them to file an indictment against Peel. In at least one case, Peel's lawyers argued prosecutors had straight up just falsified evidence. And so they were hoping to get the trial dismissed with prejudice, which would permanently bring an end to the charges against Peel, but would prove unsuccessful in that endeavor. Yeah, I mean, the white gas residue versus real gas residue yeah. should have been an immediate like that's immediate, a huge yeah. piece of evidence and that mm-hmm. not only that but like even something that uh you know with what he previously mentioned in um like a hearing you know he was talking about those those few words really do change the meaning of something that he said now it's using mm-hmm. being used against him sort of thing yeah one um, is one is literally like those three words literally go from innocent to i did this like mm-hmm. well yeah it goes from it goes from guilty to someone that's scared for their life saying, why do people think it's me? Yeah, exactly. So now Peel's lawyers uh, would also ask the judge presiding over the case to resurface the now sunk investor, which had sunk about six miles away from Craig while being towed back to Washington, the state for refitting. Now they argued that the state allowing the hole to sink was akin to destroying the crime scene, as they were now unable to test for bullet holes, ballistics, etc., all of which could lead to more conclusively uh, to a second suspect. Hmm? Hmm? Now Philip Widener, uh, which was Peel's main attorney, he oh. argued that, and here comes, here comes the <laughs> Richard, part come back. Here's a, here's a crescendo. <laughs> The defense is now in the posture of having to search the bottom of the ocean for the scene of the alleged crime. Exactly. I would and, I would agree that they really messed that up. Yeah. Like they they let it sink. That is destroying evidence, and that is really bad police work. They fucked yeah, up from I the get go, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's this whole thing was botched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in August of 1985. During these preliminary hearings, it became apparent that the allegations from the defense were finally beginning to lead somewhere when Ketchikan Superior Court Judge Thomas Schultz chastised prosecutors for failing to present potentially absolving evidence to the grand jury. Uh, You know, that had originally indicted John Yeah. So he stated that the grand jury might have carefully weighed this evidence against the incriminating evidence presented by the prosecution, but never had the chance because prosecutors you know, had withheld it from them instead of presenting only one side of the argument. So leading to Peel's indictment. Now it was later learned that this potentially absolving evidence included numerous eyewitnesses statements uh, from people that had seen the suspicious man on the skiff leaving the crime scene, but had purposefully chosen not to identify John Peel as their guy immediately after the crime was reported you know, when their memories were fresh. So um, they're railing against the prosecutors for presenting only one side of the argument against Peel. And so Judge Schultz proclaimed in court, what the hell conclusion am I supposed to draw on those facts? Do you know of any other conclusion a lay person would draw? It's like leading a bull through a barn door with a ring in his nose. It's a nice tight interference. That was suggested very clearly to the grand jury. Very nice. I can't pinpoint that accent. Yeah. Was, was that uh, Scottish, Irish? No idea. Yeah. <laughs> just, just words coming out of his mouth. Uh, it, was, it was like, I'm trying to be like, where is this from? 
Now, towards the end of that summer, uh, which was the end of August 1985, Judge Thomas Schultz agreed to dismiss the charges against John Peel without prejudice, meaning that he could be tried again. And here comes that <laughs> really intense part yeah. of this. It's this an intense part of the courtroom. Yeah, exactly. Very, very intense. So meaning that he could be tried again for the same charges, but not under the current set of circumstances. Now, prosecutors <laughs> would have to re refile charges and start back from square one. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you're trying to fight Richard for attention. I don't think you're going to win. I don't think you're going to win this fight, dude. <laughs> Richard. Look he's up, boy. He's, look at that smile. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> now, Judge Schultz... <laughs> Judge Schultz stated about the prosecution's decision to withhold evidence from the grand jury. It was a hell of a mistake. They're going to have to go back and re-indict him if they can. Yeah. Now, despite deciding to dismiss the current case against Peel, Judge Schultz would refuse to cancel his $1.1 million bond. Wow. Which had been met after a group of his friends and family put together a real estate package of over a million dollars and held fundraisers in their local community to raise enough money to pay his $100,000 retainer. Now, similarly, Judge Schultz refused to validate the defense's position that the prosecutors had intimidated witnesses, stating that there wasn't enough evidence to support that. Now, while this decision was overall, you know, a legal victory for John Peel and his defense, it was anything but permanent, with officials quickly putting together a second round of charges against him. And that October, John Peel was indicted by a second grand jury and a new trial was ordered, you know, set to begin on the same date that his original trial had been scheduled for. Um, I looked it up just now. One point one million in 1985 is about two point seven to two point eight million dollars today. Damn. That is a lot of dinero. That's a two thousand dollar retainer. Yeah, that's crazy. Man. That's, that's a lot that's of so money. much money. Now, Peel would again plead innocent to all of the charges filed against him and begin to dig in alongside his lawyers, you know, preparing for the extended legal battle that yeah. was still just months away. Now, despite attempts by John Peel's lawyers to buy more time for their defense, the trial to decide his guilt was scheduled to start on January 13th of 1986. Even though the trial was expected to last upwards of two months, Judge Thomas Schultz told jurors to prepare for at least four months due to the large amount of evidence that was lined up to be presented, namely witnesses, uh, many of whom lived out of state and would have to be transported to the remote area of Ketchikan by boat or plane. Now, in time, this would result in the trial becoming the most expensive in state history, at least up until this point. <clears throat> Can you imagine having to be a fucking juror for that? God, that's yeah. not even four months. Yeah, you're missing work for four months. Yeah, that's they don't they pay you, be... they don't pay you shit. Right, no. right. Now, excuse me, before the trial started, the defense and prosecutors began posturing in opposing measures. Now, Peel's lawyer, with Philip Widener, uh, who would end up representing Peel for free because he viewed the state's case as preposterous, and he would tell reporters this. 
Now, the many cases I've encountered in my career, I've never seen such serious charges brought on the basis of the weak evidence reflected by the record in this case. Although it's unfortunate that there even has to be a trial, I and Mr. Peel look forward to an opportunity to point out to a jury the lack of evidence and the unreliability of the state's damn witnesses. I've also noticed that every lawyer is a Southern gentleman. Yeah, what it they just are, fits, sir. man. For some yeah. reason, it just fits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have a limited <laughs> selection of voices, so yeah, that's that's why I just started that voice and just kept it going. I was like, I don't know what to say, so I'm just going. <laughs> I can't, I can't try anything on the fly. I'll fuck it up. Gotcha. Now, prosecutors, uh, meanwhile, were much more withholding in public statements. You know, having had their original case dismissed before it got to trial, Uh-oh. due to their, I know, I'm hearing it, <laughs> due to their own oversights. There's a Christian that public embarrassment. They vowed not to try the case in the media. Oh, that was perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> now, as the trial began, the prosecution began to paint a picture of an employee seeking revenge against the man that had fired him from his lucrative position. And they began to portray John Peel as someone that had worked with Mark Colthurst in the past, but had been fired after the 1981 fishing season for the drug and alcohol abuse. However, a year later, he ended up in the same remote town as the Coulter's family and decided to come aboard the investor on the night of the murders. I'm sorry, real quick. Yeah. Are, you, are you talking with the cadence of the piano? <laughs> I'm trying to match, yeah, a little bit, just a little bit. Now, while there, prosecutors argued uh, he had likely gotten into an argument with his former friend and boss, which escalated into violence at some point that evening. After shooting and killing Mark Colthurst and his wife, Irene, Peel had then gone on to murder the couple's two children and Mark's four crewmen, fearing that any of them would be able to identify him as the killer. He had then gone through the extensive process of attempting to scuttle the ship, but due to his unfamiliarity with the expensive new fishing vessel, he had then resorted to fire to destroy the crime scene. Afterward, he had continued to lie low with his crew, eventually returning to Washington State at the end of that fishing season and seeking a new career opportunity that would keep him in state for the foreseeable future. Now, at least that's the argument that the prosecutors made through their extensive and expensive calling of witnesses throughout the trial. That's what they were able to conjure up. That's what they thought his motive was. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, some of these witnesses claimed that Peel had exhibited bizarre behavior both before and after the murders and seemed to express knowledge about the crime that was not common knowledge. Some of these witnesses claimed that Peel had known about the victims being shot to death before September 9th, 1982. And when that information was publicly released by the authorities for the first time, um, that that was the first time it was released. Now, so it was it was fishy that they knew that. Yeah, it was uh, like what? how how do you know this information before, like you know it was, it even happened. So yes, so that seems very. I, I don't know. It, it's not, it's it, 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 sorry, what? The, the piano is getting really <laughs> intense right now. What were we gonna say? <laughs> I don't know if I was trying to say anything. I just trying to formulate a thought, but it's it's pretty suspect. You know what I mean? In general. Sorry, just, you're going to have to excuse Richard here for a minute. He's 
He's really going to get to this right now. God, every damn time. Richard, can you fucking relax? Richard, relax! Get this guy down, Richard, son of a bitch! <laughs> Saying about you. All right, all right, he's, he's calming down. So, yeah, now among these witnesses were a couple of uh, fishing captains who claimed to have seen odd happenings around the crime scene at the time of the murders, uh, which believed to have happened. Now, this included one captain that claims to have suddenly remembered details about that night of the murders more than a month after they happened later on. Uh, oh, so, suddenly? Something was missing here. Uh, yes. Look, some, Sudden, some, suddenly uh, remembered well, the murders. The murders happened in 1982, so a month after they happened, he remembered something. Yeah. He's like, oh, actually, I you're right. Something. You wrote it right. Oh, gotcha. So, yeah. So later he had, on a, in he had a month. Gotcha. He had a month to remember this stuff and when it happened right away. And it sounds like they had already interviewed him about what may have happened. And he's like, mm -hmm. oh, I don't know. And then a month later, like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Now that I ever think about yeah. it. You know. Now that the case is going on, you guys have fingered somebody. I'm jogging my memory now. Mm -hmm. Now, Jeff Fundy. Jeff yeah, Fundy, I'll allow it. I like it. Jeff Fundy, uh, who was the captain of the Sheila Ryan, had been in Craig on the night of the murders and had not recalled anything seemingly out of the ordinary until a month or so later. And he was at his home when he heard gunshots in the distance, you know, someone target shooting mm. and claims that his recollect recollection was kickstarted by the mere sound. And he would tell the court that he suddenly remembered hearing a loud argument aboard the investor on the evening of September 5th, 1982. And he explained it this way. Then I believe I heard shots, uh, six or eight shots, uh, then a scream. Then I believe there were more shots. It went on for quite some time. And that's really, really interesting that after the scream that he didn't mm. think anything of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I, and I then actually, more shots after that. I kind of, the way this is describing it anyway, um, of the way this happened, I kind of don't believe him. Already, right? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, this is all kind of suspect. Like, oh, I just all of a sudden remembered. And then he heard <clears throat> what, maybe he thought were shots and didn't register and then he heard a scream mm -hmm. and also we've already been over this just two ships and whatever maybe they're below deck or not but that would be i don't know where a house would be in mm -hmm. relative in a small directions town. To, yeah yeah and i, I don't and, know and then it's, again like if he heard it from his house again like it was a 22 caliber right like mm -hmm. again how likely is he is is he to hear that from that far distance? Yeah, I already um, have my doubts about any of this. Right. So I, don't, I mean, he could be telling the truth. I don't know, but I, right. I'm down. Wait till you hear with, this. Yeah, exactly. You know, all with very valid uh, suspicion because Fundy would later admit to drinking alcohol on the evening <laughs> in question. It's and, like it's like that. Uh, <laughs> um, I hit I hit my wife last night. <laughs> oh jeez! <laughs> uh, I found out my wife was dead. Who the hell did I hit? <laughs> So he also believed that he had not been dreaming, uh, but he wasn't 100% positive, um, you know, so as one does when they drink, you know, you can't tell if you're awake or dreaming. Yeah, so. you have those lucid dreams and you're like, <laughs> exactly. wait, was that real? Did I actually do yeah. that? <laughs> now, Peel's lawyers would call into question his sudden recollection of these events weeks after the fact and disputed their validity. Way to go, lawyer. Mm. Now, the other skipper uh, brought to the witness stand was Larry Demert Jr. 
the captain of I don't know why I say I don't names. Know why I, said it like every that. time I, I, I pronounce Larry names, it's Larry Demmer Jr. Larry Jr. Every time there's a junior, Larry Demmer Jr. There's a certain cadence that goes to it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he was the captain of the ship that John Peel was working on at the time of the murders. Libby 8. Mm. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, Richard getting a little bit uh, carried away here. Yeah. Now, Demert was able to provide <laughs> a much more convincing argument against Peel. Now, someone that, uh, you know, he had employed and worked with and had known for over a decade when the victims aboard the investor had been killed. So he has now, a solid relationship with this guy. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, Demert would tell the court that on the evening of September 6th, 1982, at around 2 o'clock, he was awoken. I'm assuming this is 2 a.m. Yes. Uh, he was awoken. And he said this. I think I heard a woman scream. But immediately after that, I heard popping sounds. It's like a generator that was backfiring. But I, I wasn't so sure. And I was really scared. I had never been that scared in my entire life. And it was like there was danger in the air. Evil in the air. Oh, it was real thick. And I saw John Peel standing on the dock. It looked like he might have had a rifle in his hand. I also like how everyone in this fishing village is just completely shammered. Like they're just <laughs> yeah. drunk. Like there's nothing going on in Alaska. Let's just get drunk. They, there's a high percentage of alcohol abuse in Alaska for that I, reason. That, that is, a, yeah, that is a very true statistic. I'm not making that up. Also true. Email us. Mm-hmm. Now, Larry Demert uh, said that he identified John Peel because this ominous figure was wearing the same sweatshirt that and hat that Peel often wore and said that the only gun Peel had available to him, which was usually locked up, you know, aboard the Libby 8, um, Libby 8 is the name of the boat, had an identifiable scope on it. Uh, Demert would then testify that Peel had decided to fly home to Bellingham instead of riding back aboard their ship. Now, John Peel's lawyers would argue that Demert was only testifying for the prosecution to avoid getting out of separate drug charges that he was facing, which is an accusation that I can't really confirm. Yeah, and, I'll, I'll cover the, at, at the very end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This kind of makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And he was grilled extensively about his prescription to Valium, which Ooh. they alleged may have impaired his memory at the time of his testimony. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, we, I don't know if I should, it's getting kind of loud right now. <laughs> and pretty intense. Now, Alice Irons. <laughs> We're going to go for it now. <laughs> A waitress at Ruth Ann's restaurant in Cranelisca. I can't do it. <laughs> oh my god. What a song choice, huh? Oh my goodness. All right, I think it's over. Yeah. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. No, no, you're good. He's, he's, no, no, you're good. Oh, you're you're good. He's ramping down. He's ramping right. down. Alice Irons, uh, which was a waitress at Ruth Ann's restaurant in Craig, Alaska, had been one of the last people to see the entire Colthurst family alive on the night of the supposed murder. Now, she testified that she had seen the entire family with John Peel just hours before they were murdered, claiming that John had spoken to Mark for roughly 10 minutes at some point between 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock 
p.m. However, when she was questioned by the defense weeks later, Irons was unable to rebute or rebut, excuse yeah, me, rebut these claims that she might have been confusing this encounter with another uh, from a few months prior to that hearing, uh, where she had encountered John Peel meeting with his lawyers at another restaurant she was working at. So now she, her memory is a little bit fuzzy. You know, she yeah, was it this place or was it that place? Yeah, no. Working a couple of jobs will do that to you. Now, this back and forth between witnesses would carry on for several months, uh, with the prosecution finally resting their case in late June, which was four months after the trial had started, allowing the defense to take over and present their side. Um, now, the defense of John Peel you know, took on many of the same tactics as the prosecution, uh, calling numerous witnesses of their own that seemed to dispute many of the prosecution's witnesses. And these witnesses would cast doubt on John Peel being the man from the skiff, who had been seen by multiple witnesses, not all of whom agreed upon John Peel being the guy. You don't say. Hmm, interesting. Mm. Now, Joseph Waymiller, a commercial fisherman, I, I was really hoping I got that might, that, that right. nailed it, dude. You got, the word, you got the last name right, but you didn't get might right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Waymiller, who was a commercial fisherman uh, who had been in Craig in September of 1982, told the court that John Peel was not the man that he had seen. Uh, whom he had told police about shortly after authorities began responding to the fire aboard the investor. Now, Waymiller claimed that the man he had seen was middle-aged and stocky, uh, perhaps of Native American origin. Oh, okay. Spicy. Yeah. yeah, spicy. Meet the ball. None of which could be used to describe John Peel, who was a tall and lanky young white man. Yeah, that doesn't sound like him. I don't know... Yeah. Young white man, Native American, middle aged. Well, the the in the kind of you know, I wouldn't say descriptions that we've seen so far has always been that he's been a stocky, stocky guy. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, tall and lanky doesn't fit. Doesn't, stocky doesn't quite fit. But light brown and or blonde hair doesn't necessarily fit. Oh, Native American. Here right. we go with the logic. Wow. Mm. Yep. Yeah. See, things getting interesting now. Unless now, they dyed their hair, but most Native Americans I see have black hair. Very yeah, dark. Black dirty, hair. Very dark yeah. hair. Yeah. So several of the eyewitnesses that had spoken to police in the wake of the murders, uh, many whom had seen the alleged man from the skiff, claimed that investigators had excessively used photos of John Peel in their photo lineups, with it being reported that eight out of the 29 photos presented to witnesses were just different photos of John Peel. Mm. Wow. Now, yeah, it was, yeah. it was basically just saying this is our guy and trying to make it a, yeah. their best argument of them picking him out. It's essentially like you see this one face over and over again. You start to associate that like, oh, I recognize that face because you've yeah. just seen it. Hold on it's almost like it's almost like deja vu. Like deja <clears throat> vu is something just happened, but your brain glitches and it happens again. It's in its exact same moment, but you saw it twice. Yeah, you know yeah. that's what deja vu is, and that's kind of what the pictures would be. You see one picture, then a bunch of randoms and another picture like, hmm, I feel like I've seen that guy before, but you just saw him three pictures ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the weird part is that why would they resort to that sort of thing? You know, it's eight of the 29 photos were all the same suspect. Um, it's very suspicious to me. So yeah. 
Um, it was believed that this might have tainted the witness pool, making them more predisposed to pick out Peel as their suspect, obviously. Yep. In seven out of the eight photos, Peel had been wearing a baseball cap, which fit the description of the man from the skiff who was wearing a dark baseball cap. This is railroading to the max. Yep. Mm -hmm. And three of the eight were mugshot photos taken from the interrogation room in the Bellingham Police Department. Now, a psychology professor from the University of Washington, her name was Elizabeth Loftus, um, who had been called upon by numerous law enforcement agencies uh, to testify in criminal trials, would say this about the stacked photo lineup. I would hold this up as probably one of the worst examples of the photographic test. This is not a fair test. And rightfully so. Yeah, that's, uh, that is a very, uh, you know, yeah, I was very, just thinking also dirty. you included a mugshot, like you associate that with guilty. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah, that's already already done bad stuff in the past. And like yeah. if you think about like what we were saying earlier, like there's a mugshot of the guy, you recognize that face, right? And then two two pictures later he's just wearing a hat. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I've seen that guy and he looks guilty because of the mugshot picture. Like you yeah. already your brains are like he must be guilty of something. Yeah. Drawing conclusions. Wow. Yeah. 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 It's basically the prosecution saying, This is the guy we want. Let's make mm -hmm. sure we get the guy we want mm -hmm. by including a majority of his pictures in the photo lineup and we'll throw in a teaser of a mugshot and that mm -hmm. will seal the deal. Yeah. Case closed. Let's go home to the Bahamas. This Pretty case, much. this case has just joined my list of if you want to hate the government, <laughs> research this. Yeah, so yeah. now it's the sign uh, the here, West, the West Memphis three. The uh, Trial of the Chicago 7. The uh, Investor Murders. Waco and the Investor Murders. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, and uh, How to Make a Murder. Yeah, yeah, that one Dassey, too. Brandon Dassey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, while the... Ooh. Uh, sorry? No, sorry. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you got excited <laughs> no. about something real quick over there. What's going on? I want to cover that. Oh, no, okay. I'm sorry. All right. Um, so, yeah, I'm while sorry. the prosecution had tried to paint a picture of a wronged employee, the defense pushed back against that presenting numerous witnesses who claimed that John Peel and Mark Coulthurst had been on good terms at the time of the murders and that they had actually gotten along and were friendly with each other you know, other leading up to the date of the murders. Mm -hmm. And after all, you know, Peel and Coulthurst live close to one another and belong to the same large friend group, you know, often interacting with each other and their families during social gatherings. Uh, devil's advocate on this part, though. Mm -hmm. Do it. It's usually someone you know. It's... Mm -hmm. When the chances of murders, yeah. when it comes to murder, like especially this horrendous, mm -hmm. um, is never like a random, you know what I mean? Like not never, but mm -hmm. likely not a random happening. You know, it's usually someone, you know, someone really close to the family. Yeah. You know, yeah, that has usually, an alter uh, 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 alternative uh, motive. Mm -hmm. Ulterior? Ulterior. Ulterior. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And sure. Uh, so it's like <laughs> in a lot of podcasts and other crim like true crime things, they always like the husband did it like just immediately you know what i mean it's, it's almost yeah. the same thing like oh it's it's the close friend it's it's someone or you know the, yeah. the previous um deckhand mm -hmm. mm. yeah. yeah but then again why would he do it that we still haven't got to the why he would do something like this yeah i got I it i mean i i don't know anything about it but i can think of that's just me projecting scenarios but like yeah, maybe he didn't pay maybe he didn't pay him a last check maybe they were I don't know, myriad of things. Richard, tell us. Yeah. yeah, he'll tell us with his music. Now, Peel's main attorney, uh, Philip Widener, would argue that prosecutors had built a quote-unquote house of cards based on nothing but speculation and 
inferences, which he claimed didn't hold up to scrutiny. Now, Peel's lawyers would float a theory during the trial that the murders might have been committed by a professional hitman, someone hired to carry out a hit on any of the eight victims. Now, when Philip Widener had the opportunity to question Sergeant Chuck Miller of the Alaska State Troopers, he would ask about a witness who had heard explosive sounds approximately once an hour for several hours early on the morning of September 6th, and he said this. Isn't that consistent with someone holding the crew and executing them one by one, trying to get something from Mark Coulter's? Interesting. Uh, it is. Um, yeah, very yeah. interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Now, additionally, Widener would claim that the investigators had not looked into the allegations that the investor's owner and captain, Mark Colthurst, might have been involved in an international drug shipping, which he argued included a potentially large amount of cocaine, which had allegedly been transferred from the investor to another ship within 24 hours of the murders, which when they unfolded. Now, this drug angle seemed to kind of conflate with the possibility of an assassin carrying out the crime. Uh, Two angles that the defense leaned on during the course of the presenting their arguments. Wow. Interesting, right? They're literally looking at everything now. Everything. But Mm -hmm. these are often, like I I know off my top of my head, I know a few cases where there's like no clear answers. Like, oh, maybe they were drug mules and they got caught up in the wrong thing. Maybe there was a deal gone wrong. Like, I can't tell you how many times is, and two times I could think of, there was like, oh, maybe an assassin did it because there's, mm-hmm. it was so like, there's no evidence. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe I, it was, maybe it was Maybelline. Maybe it was Maybelline. <laughs> Maybelline. <laughs> Maybelline? Maybelline. I'm sticking with it. It's Maybelline from now on. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it's Maybelline. That's maybe a Costco version. Yeah, got it. Now, Peel's legal team would also point to additional evidence that investigators had seemingly ignored, which related to one of the investors' crewmen. Dean Moon had been one of the... Right, sorry. You're going to win. Dean Moon had been one of the two crewmen who were... Who were, all right, sorry. <clears throat> Dean Moon had been one of the two crewmen who were presumed dead aboard the burnt ship, but who had not been identified through any forensic link. Widener would argue that the two witnesses who had reported seeing Dean Moon in San Francisco after the murders, as recently as 1983, including one witness that was previously familiar with the presumed dead deckhand. He was seen later on? Yes. Like, for sure? Or is this just something someone said? Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one of the other arguments presented by the defense were the allegations that Mark Colthurst, the deceased captain of the investor, had a reputation for flying into fits of rage whilst drinking. Now, this argument was bolstered by the fact that Alaska's medical examiner, Donald Rogers, had noted during his examinations of Mark and Irene Coulter's body that they had high blood alcohol levels pointing to impairment at the time of deaths. Um, But they couldn't say that definitively because of the damage done to their bodies by the flames. She Uh, was pregnant. Right. But it seems... uh, Now she don't care. Yeah, that's what... uh, Apparently. 1983 were wild wild times. 1982. Yeah. Now, Mark who had been known to become slightly argumentative while drinking, was known to have a fiery temper at times, as many sailors do. 
And this was provided into the record by defense attorneys who argued that there was just as much proof incriminating Mark Holthurst in the murders as there was John Peel. Now, this wasn't meant to be a derogatory statement aimed at Mark Holthurst specifically, one of the eight victims of this crime, um, but was meant to highlight the state's overwhelming lack of physical evidence, of which there was basically none. I can see their point. Yeah, like they're not like necessarily blaming him, but they're just like, look, this, the, what you're saying could fit Mark just as well as it does John. Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah okay. So John Peel's lawyers would continue to petition the court to dismiss the charges because of alleged evidence that the prosecutors had leaned on uh, witnesses to testify in exchange for favors. Now, this included the allegations of two witnesses from Bellingham uh, who had reportedly asked a local attorney to step in and help protect them from overreaching the prosecutors, but did little to sway the judge in the charge of the case. Now, the defense would finally rest a case in August of 1986 after six weeks of refuting the state's case and pointing the blame at other potential suspects. Now, 11 women and five men had been selected to the jury pool in January of 1986 and were told from the get-go that four among them would be eliminated during the trial before reaching the deliberation phase. Eventually, uh, the jury would be comp uh, comprised of nine women and three men, none of whom were sequestered throughout the trial, but encouraged to refrain from discussing the case with anyone. Yeah, that always works. Right, right. Yeah. Now, these jurors would spend the better part of 1986 observing the trial, uh, not breaking to deliberate until late August, nearly seven months after the trial had started. And... Now, a over, hell of a trial. That's a long-ass trial. Damn. Now, over the span of roughly 25 weeks, they had viewed more than 800 pieces of evidence, including more than 150 witnesses, all of whom had to be flown or shipped to the remote location of the trial at the state's expense. The total cost of the trial was estimated to be upwards of $2 million, which is a steep price to pay for justice. Jesus. Justice that would never quite arrive. <clears throat> Can you imagine? And again, I know we're running long, so I'm going to try and keep uh, mm -hmm. my shit to a <clears throat> small tangent. Uh, being one of those fucking jurors, and you've been stuck seven doing this for fucking seven months, you have to realize if it's a long trial like that, it's definitely going to sway the jurors in the, the way of like, how the fuck can we get out of here? What's the quickest way of getting out of this? Right. They either had to be really dedicated to, you know, justice or they, like you said, they just want to get that they shit They just want to go home. Yeah. It's, that, that is $5 million today. God What's damn. Because two, $2 million oh, back two in million, the 1980s. Yeah. yeah. 1986 and $2 million is a 4.9. Yeah. So, so $5 million. That's a lot of dineros. That is a lot of moolah. Yeah. So damn. on Thursday, August 28th, 1986, following six days of deliberation, the jury informed judge thomas schultz that they had been unable to come to a consensus regarding john peel's fate the jury had re-listened to several dozens hours of testimony during the span but none of it had helped clear up their points of contention now a juror would later tell reporters that they had been leaning in favor of acquittal uh, primarily being split seven five in favor of a non-guilty verdict but leaning towards nine three on certain counts uh, hmm. but had been unable to come to a consensus after nearly an entire week of deliberating, uh, resulting in a hung jury. Now, 
this would bring the longest <laughs> and most expensive try. I know you're, we tried to skate over. We tried to skate over. So this would uh, bring the longest and most expensive <laughs> trial in Alaska state history to an end. Yeah, wait, wait, um, let's, well, what were you saying? How was that? Were you, you going to say something legit? <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. Okay. No, 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 no. So no, no. anyways, <laughs> but did nothing to clear up the fate of John Peel, who had been 22 at the time of the murders and 24 at the time of his arrest and was now 26, approaching 27. So this is his entire 20, the 20s of his life. Mid -tw yeah, yeah. mid-20s. Yeah, that's yep. crazy, dude. And, and he's in jail the whole time. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Well, and had yet to be found guilty or not guilty in Alaska's most notorious mass murder. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, he's not the only part that I did research was the second trial mm -hmm. and he's not in jail, but he is not able to do anything. <sighs> right. So this first I, indictment had been dismissed before the trial and most recent attempts had resulted in a mistrial, uh, neither of which allowed the case to be dismissed outright. So the case was again punted back to the state who waited whether or not to pursue charges against John Peel for the third time. Now, after spending nearly four years and several million dollars doing that, they would spend several weeks contemplating that decision before deciding in October of 1986 to bring Peel to trial yet again. Man. Crazy, and, uh, right? It's fucking crazy. That is a hung jury after all that like and then they decided to do it again yeah they're like yep. you know what one of these wasn't enough let's do it again another round another round everybody. another round all right richard you ready let's keep this going let's keep it going Go. baby. so this this was the only part that i looked up of the whole thing so mm -hmm. all i know is the outcome of the second trial okay so here we go five years after the investor had been set ablaze peel's second trial started in january of 1988 at the juno superior court and the same prosecutor who ran the first trial, uh, Mary Ann Henry, she told jurors that the state had messed up the investigation and had presented no physical evidence or even what motive John Peel may have had. Now, this is the prosecutor saying this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but she says that does not mean they could not prove that Peel had in fact committed this crime. Her plan was uh, proving he had done this based on eyewitness testimony of people who saw John Peel in and around the area where the investor had been at the time of the killings. Um, so they would also claim that people saw John in the investor skiff. Like these witnesses are saying that now specifically John is in the investor skiff mm -hmm. after the boat had been found burning in that cove near Craig. So now they're saying they saw him for sure on the boat after mm -hmm. the boat was burning. Yeah. So that was her plan. Like she knows that they messed up this investigation. She knows that they don't yeah. have sh no fucking evidence whatsoever. But yeah, you can't people prove said just off of eyewitness yeah, accounts, right? But that's her yeah. plan. That's yeah. her plan. So it's just like, all right. So, all right. Cool. <laughs> that's all I can say about it. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, like I said before, their only hard evidence was eyewitness accounts. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's all they had. So Peel's attorney, Philip Weidman, however, said, "Now, from the moment it was issued." I've always said the indictment was not worth the paper it was printed on. Damn, that's a sick burn. That is a sick burn. <laughs> so during this time, John Peel had been supported by friends financially. Like f family and friends were supporting him completely on whatever money he needed, which is ironic because like Brian said, this 
The trial against John Peel would amount to almost $3 million, including this investigation. So it was $2 million for the investigation and the first trial. That was $2 million. And it was like 700, over 700,000 for the second trial. Mm-hmm. And then to try him again, um, not to mention though, John Peel himself was held on a $1 million property bond since his arrest in 1984. Yep. And so he was held, his parents, he lived with his parents and could like, he was on house arrest. Like his yeah. parents were completely in charge of him. He couldn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like he was a hundred percent like detained to that house. Okay. So that since, answers my question of him being in jail. It's right. House arrest. No, he was, he house was stuck arrest. on house arrest. Okay. And on a $1 million property bond. So it was pretty hefty. Like all of this combined is what, like four, almost $4 million. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's a, so he's been on trial. house arrest for five years, going on six years. So, uh, after a three-month trial this time, in which the defense didn't even call any witnesses because according to Peel's attorney, he said, I don't put a case on because there was no need to dignify this case by putting on witnesses. He's really digging into this whole, yeah. like, this is a bad trial. Yes. So, uh, after three months, the jurors deliberated for four days, and when they came back, they announced that they find John Peel not guilty of eight counts of first-degree murder and not guilty to one count of first-degree arson. And when John heard the announcements, he started like bawling, like crying his eyes out. And his family and everybody in the courtroom cheered loudly. Like they were just all about this. Mm -hmm. It was a happy moment for everyone supporting him. Right. And uh, his attorney said, the prosecutor's put an innocent man and his family through this ordeal for four damn years. John Peel himself said, it's terrible being an innocent man accused of a crime. I just thank God it's over. Justice did work this time. Can't imagine that, dude. Like, even if he, I don't know. It's hard to say. No, like, yeah. <coughs> but imagine you are guilty deep down, like <laughs> mm-hmm. not, not guilty. You're John Peel and you're like, I didn't fucking do it. Mm-hmm. But for right. four years, you've had to battle your innocence. Yeah. Yeah. But imagine you did do it. You're John. Yes. Peele, yes. And you're like, man, it took four years, but this is over. Yeah. So anyways, That's crazy. Uh, shortly after the trial, Peel's attorney announced they were going to seek restitution and a lawsuit would be filed soon. But it wasn't clear who Peel and his attorney would be suing. But two years later, we find out that in 1990, a $177 million lawsuit was filed against the state for wrongful prosecution. And in 1997, Seven years later, he reportedly settled the suits for nine hundred thousand dollars. Wow, so worth it. A chunk of change. Yeah, good chunk of change there. So Ted Smith, who is related to five of the people who lost their lives on the boat, said, "Somebody ought to pay. I don't say it should have been Peel, but it should have been somebody." Which is perfectly understandable. I mean, I can't imagine yeah. not only dealing with the murder in general, but an unsolved murder murder on top of that. And then have a trial for a possible murder suspect on top of that, only to be left with more questions than answers is rough. And yeah, I imagine just like Lizzo Borden, people still probably treated John Peel like he was guilty despite being acquitted of all the charges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Life is permanently changed after that. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> that's why he wore the fucking ski mask and shit. He knew like, mm-hmm. damn, dude, my life is over. Mm-hmm. Even if I, if I did it or not, even if he was innocent through and through, man that's still your whole life is that marred by this completely for the rest of your life no matter what the outcome would have been Mm -hmm. this is how you're known no matter what 
So on an interview on Current Affair, John Peel was asked what it might take to clear his name. And he replied, Them to solve the case. 37 years later, the true identity of the killer is still a mystery. Damn, dude. That's, dude, that's fucking crazy, man. Like, we don't know who it is. Like, yeah, did he do it or not? We don't, I, like, I'm we, on we John's had, side, honestly. Yeah. Like, like, final thing, I'm on John's side. Yeah, we like, had like we had clear suspicions with like the Lizzie Borden case. Like we're mm-hmm. like, okay, she most likely did it. You know, the, mm-hmm. there was a a pretty bad court case about it, but it was pretty clear that she may have done it. This right. one, it's either it could go either way. Like we again, mm-hmm. we don't know, and that's what's crazy about these unsolved cases is that it could lean one way or the other. Um, I personally don't think he did it either. Um, it just seemed super sketch that they were willing to try to like, I don't want to say frame, but it seemed like they were just trying to get the case over with. And they were just trying to pe- like pin John Peel as the guy. Um, okay, no, for so, sure. But I mean, I'm, I'm the, torn. I'm torn. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, kind of the, 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 the big thing was a, the, the, the drugs like that what, following just because he he smoked weed or sold weed to people no the the whole thing with the why they brung up the like the drug oh, the side cocaine, of things the cocaine things was how does a guy that young afford a million dollar ship if he wasn't good point. Good point. if they, he wasn't doing something the only explanation they gave was that he was a good fisherman 77,000 pounds of salmon, though, can catch you quite a bit, but for a million dollars a vessel? Yeah. Yeah, and again, what who's doing in in Washington, um, but yeah. That's... I don't know, man. It's There's a lot of different angles to consider. I mean, again, with John Peel being the main suspect, it's really dif- difficult to say what his motive was. Like, we, it seemed to be established that he was pretty tight with everybody, but maybe like he just suddenly snapped or something. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting case. Yeah. I think for me, he's the big thing is the evidence um, for me, him not being guilty because even though burning a vessel with dead bodies is like what any 22 year old, like shit, I got to get rid of the evidence, like burn it down, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then he got away on the skiff, which was messy, right? People saw him on the skiff. If it right. was him, it's messy, yeah. but he wasn't expecting the police to not do their job. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so I don't think he's like a mastermind. I think this is just happenstance if it was him, which all of the kerosene and people not being able to like definitely say that was John on the skiff or, mm-hmm. or that was John. I saw floating the boat away. Like, I don't think it was him. Like basically the, the gasoline thing is one of the biggest things. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't kerosene, is kerosene and gas burned differently. They yeah, found evidence of that. Gas, yeah. Uh, what I find interesting, because um, uh, as I was doing the research for uh, this case, there's uh, uh, another podcast, Unresolved, mm. and they cover pretty much like all the, the cold cases. And mm. um, the guy did his own research, and there was one person that popped up that was suspicious in his eyes that lived in Craig at the time who was a known arsonist. And had a really? history, yeah. It had a history of violent crime, and they, they just let this guy walk around Craig while they're investigating he was, an arson. He was, he was one of the witnesses who identified John Peel as the man in the skiff. 
wow. <laughs> while he's lighting a match. Yeah, I yeah. saw that yeah. guy over there. He's playing with the lighter. He's playing yeah. with the lighter. Yeah, I saw John do it. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. He was he was wanted in uh Arizona in nineteen eighty one. Um and, and then he that just fled to Alaska. Yeah. Did yeah. He, terrible did police he work all around. Did he commit any war arsons while he was in Alaska or not not known? Mm. He was like basically he was, lying. He was pinned for it? Yeah, he was lying low, but it, it was one of those like red flags, like, hold on a second. You have yeah. this guy living other than being an arsonist, just known for violent crimes. Oh, okay. See, if he was just an this... arsonist, that wouldn't quite make sense that he would shoot <clears throat> eight people, especially yes. children. Like he the the violent crime part definitely takes that up a notch to probably mm -hmm. be him. You know what I mean? Because if he's if it was just arson, like I said, they want to light stuff on fire. I don't know if it's in their nature to shoot an entire family, especially a four year old kid and yeah. a pregnant woman. You know, yeah. But if you have a history kid, of violent crime, right, right, right. You're just like, who gives a shit? But yeah, that was that was interesting. That that um, that was this one guy, of them. Yeah. yeah, this guy, you know, brought up uh, the that angle. Uh, Michael yeah. Whelan is the the guy from uh, Michael Whelan from oh. Unresolved. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, I got you. <clears throat> I want to give him credit where credits due. Yeah, yeah, he, 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 he did, did all that he did digging. His, yeah, he did all that digging, digging on it. Absolutely. And, and I, I found it very interesting that he mm -hmm. like fucking nailed that down and said, "Hey, like I'm not pointing this guy out, but I'm kind of pointing this guy out." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, it's, it's interesting. Like, uh, what's if it the called? shoe if, if the shoe fits, yeah, you know. I mean, podcasters even actually very recently within the last couple of months have actually helped resolve cases. Um, there's one called in your own backyard and they cover a like, 20 something year old case that was pretty obvious when you look at it of who did it. Uh, but police were just, they'd never arrested anybody. And then finally, like in March or April, they arrested the guy who, if you look at the evidence and go back like, Oh yeah, it was probably him. Wow. And it's actually, it's actually a really messed up case because the parents were involved, like hiding the body and stuff. Damn. And it, yeah, if I recommend like looking that case up, it's a, it was now solved. But it was an unsolved case for twenty something years of a, a girl. I, I wish I hadn't forgot her name, but I, unfortunately I forgot her name. Okay. But um, the he this podcast actually made the police like reopen the case or like dig deeper and, and actually consider help. new angles and evidence. Right of how to look at things. Right, so mm -hmm. it's a fresh pair of eyes on this case. So yeah, podcasters, you know, even like I said, super recently have mm -hmm. helped cases so yeah. the um unsolved mysteries guy like kudos to you for looking at different angles you know yeah mm -hmm. that's awesome man well yeah thanks uh that's, will that was an awesome yeah, uh, that, was, that was a great case i never yeah, heard this one i'm this is I, fun. I found it yeah. super interesting and it being the largest mass murder in alaska's history i'm like and unsolved i'm like fuck yeah. we gotta yeah, yeah we, gotta we gotta do it gotta do it we, we gotta cover this so well shit man well uh octavia you thanks. got anything same as always, uh, bloodthirstypod at gmail.com. You can find us on the socials, Bloodthirsty Times. Uh, hit us up on anchor.fm, leave us voice messages. Uh, send us emails of any other unsolved cases in your area uh, that you want to hear. And um, that's it. We'll see you next awesome, week. Yeah. Catch you next week, babes. All right. I love you. Love you. Mwah. That was a very sensual that was a, Yeah, that was a wet one. Wet. Mm. It was moist. <laughs> very, very, very moist. Mm. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs>